0: Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info@capitalchurch.co. At this is a raucous crowd. Um, I want to talk about, I want to talk about uh, Easter. Obviously, uh, I want to talk about what Easter is about. Like, why, why are we even here? Like, why are we celebrating Easter? Uh, I'm going to do my best to talk about what it, what it means. Uh, I use this a lot because I think a lot of people get confused when it comes to Easter. We're like, Jesus came back from the dead, and many of us are like, okay, how is that relevant to my life, right? Um, again, there's a lot of confusion uh, when it comes to uh, bodily resurrection, to Easter, um, and my job, I think, m- many times is to clear the weeds. Everyone say clear the weeds. How many, do we have any gardeners, gardeners here today? Okay. You're kind of like me. You're like you totally love to like grow things, living things. Um, my job is just to clear the weeds. And I say this every Easter, and you probably have heard this. Don't roll your eyes. This is my one dad joke. I'm lying. It's probably my first out of five dad jokes today. Um, but how many love Salami right? Um, My wife used to be a vegan, so she did not allow salami in my home, and then God got a hold of her heart, and she eats meat all the time. I'm not joking. We we were like birds, and we ate seeds and protein shakes all the time, and so when she kind of came back to to the right side, right? Uh, Um. We love vegans. If you're a vegan, we totally love you. Please don't leave our church. Um, But when she came to the right side, uh, I remember starting eating salami again. Again, how many of you love salami? Again, you've heard this, but isn't it crazy? I think the French call it je ne sais quoi, right? What is it? When you look at salami, you have all those white little specks. Like, what in the heck are those white little specks? I like to think that they're vitamins, Right? (laughs) or I need some amino acids, any health nuts, any health guru people here? Like I, I like just to assume that it's like amino acids or something like that. Why are we talking about salami on Easter morning? Well, because I think a lot of people are confused about Easter, like they're confused about the white specks in salami, right? And so it's my job to make it clear, and these are three questions that I'm gonna uh, ask, I'm gonna do my best to answer, what is Easter about? Uh, what does it mean for, for you and I? And then how, and I don't really like this phraseology, but I'll do my best to, uh, to flesh this out. How does Easter or how is Easter relevant for you and I and our lives? All right, so we come to John chapter 20. If you didn't bring your Bible, that's, that's okay. Uh, we're just going to read a, a significant chunk of this passage. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And we're going to begin in verse 1. John writes, Verse 4, both of them were running together. How many runners do we have here? I just love how competitive they are. If you like to compete, this is your thing. But the other disciple, I love how John refers to him as the other disciple, our Aunt peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came, followed, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And then John continues, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. John kind of postulates either Jesus is a knee freak, or as they came to the tomb, something so dramatic has happened, where, because the, the body obviously has not been unwrapped, that something has happened in a very dramatic way to the body of Jesus. John is alluding to this with those details verse 8 we we continue then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead then the disciples went back to their homes so it kind of winds down and then john kind of picks up his story but mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept she stooped to look into the tomb She saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. The tomb, if you want to know I can't talk about this today, seems like is a temple. She sees two angels. Then we come to verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing But she did not know or she did not recognize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, she's right and she's wrong. It's kind of the irony of this passage. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And then Jesus said to her in verse 17, do not cling to me. This is the first mention of Klingons. Anyways, that's my second dead joke. All right. Literally reads, do not cling on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father. I love this. It's so powerful. And your Father to my God and your God. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And everyone said, amen. Bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you that you're here. Thank you that your presence is at work in our life. I thank you that you give me strength to share what you put on my heart. So say what you want to say, Jesus. Just do whatever you want to do. In our lives, Lord, I I know we, we we all come from different walks of life, Lord. I thank you that you would come and you would just every heart I pray today would leave this place with a with a renewed sense, or maybe a sense for the very first time, of your love for them. So we thank you for your grace in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. So you can't any any exaggerators here. Okay, a few of you. All right, I. I it's kind of rhetorical, but I don't think you can exaggerate. Well, I'll say it this way. You can't overstate um, the central claim of early Christians. The central claim of early Christians first, let me just I'll, I'll explain this really quick, was not that Jesus was a good teacher. And Jesus w- was a good teacher, right? Um, he was so good that he made people forget about eating lunch, right? That's good preaching, Right? Some of you, you're thinking about lunch right now, right? And um, but this never happened to Jesus. Jesus was so good, people forgot to eat for even even days. So the central claim of early Christianity, again, you can't overstate this, was not that Jesus was a good teacher, and he was a good te- teacher. It wasn't that Jesus like some ancient or primitive uh, yuppie self-help guru with with the perfect beard, right? Many people have a lot of different hi- hypotheses of. Who Jesus was. Some would have suggested that Jesus was a subversive Marxist revolutionary. Some have claimed that the central claim of early Christians was that Jesus was a wandering pale Gnostic teacher, right? But he was none of that. Uh, The central claim, he was actually a a good teacher, but he wasn't a Gnostic teacher. Um, And it wasn't even the fact that Jesus was a powerful healer and Jesus healed a lot of people, and he can heal today. It wasn't the fact, and this, again, wasn't the central claim of early Christians, that Jesus was that once-in-a-millennium inspirational leader that started a movement, in the words of one scholar. The central claim, again, you can't overstate this, of early Christians was that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. In fact, you take away um, the birth stories of Jesus, many scholars will tell you this, you lose uh, four chapters, right? Roughly two, is my math right? Two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew and two chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Math adds up four, right? You take away the birth stories of Jesus, you lose four chapters, but if you take away the resurrection and any reference to resurrection, you lose the entire New Testament and most of the second century church fathers, So early Christianity, got to hear me, was not a Christmas movement. And gee whiz, I don't know why I said gee whiz, but I love Christmas. And all the Christmas people said amen. amen. Like I love sipping on eggnog lattes, man. I love elves. I love the candy. Right, I love talking about the incarnation of Jesus, but early Christianity's central claim was not that it was a Christmas movement. It was not a going home to heaven movement. In fact, the central claim when it comes to Christianity is that it was a movement about the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, it's this claim that, that, that affected um, the entire, we'll say, ethos of early Christianity. In fact, Christian martyrs would go to their death and they would face the powers to be, not because they simply believed Jesus was a good teacher, but they believed that Jesus came back from the dead. I just read um, this last week. It just, I, I love reading. I was sick all week, so I was in my bed, um, sick all week, in my bed. I'm raising 35 kids, so My wife was judging me the whole time. No, I'm kidding. Um, So I read a couple hundred pages, uh, a lot of different scholars on resurrection, and just kind of went through church history. I was struck by the fearlessness of of the first Christians. It's amazing how how, um, bold they were as they confronted Caesar's and the powers to be. In fact, one scholar says, it was people who believed in the resurrection who stood up to Caesar's. There's one uh, account of... A girl, she was 21 years old, Uh, I think it was the end of maybe, uh, I think it might have been the beginning of the second century, that's probably wrong, but I got a head cold, and so just go with it. Uh, But she was 21 years old, she was a catechumen, meaning that she was getting ready for baptism. She was imprisoned with fellow catechumens who were preparing for baptism, and they were imprisoned uh, to be thrown into uh, the games at Carthage. So she wrote a journal. And uh, in this journal, she talks about uh, what she was experiencing and her passion. Everyone say her passion. passion. talked about her passion, and uh, which I find fascinating. This is really one of the only written works of a woman in the ancient world, and was by a 21-year-old Christian. So we know um, from many different eyewitness accounts that she, with many other catechumens, were thrown into this amphitheater. She was gored by a wild um, cow, Uh, she still survived with one of her fellow um, catechumens who had just given birth, this is just amazing, a couple days before. They stripped them naked. She said nothing. She didn't curse um, the powers, she didn't curse the crowd. When she was gored, after she was gored, she was, um, she literally was on the floor unconscious And then she came back, and she gave her fellow catechumen a kiss of peace, and then they killed her. It was because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus that these early Christian martyrs had the courage to face the powers. In fact, we know that uh, early Christians took care of the sick and the vulnerable and the stranger, Because they believed, again, that Jesus was not just a good teacher, but that he came back from the dead. In fact, hospitals were invented by Christians. Hospitals shares the same root as hospitality. If you don't know what the word hospitality, we've talked a lot about this in church over the last year. But hospitality comes from a compound word, which means love of stranger. So it was Christians who practiced the love of stranger, the love of the sick, the love of the vulnerable. They invented hospitals because they believed in the practice of hospitality. In fact, Emperor Julian was so infuriated over what he called the atheist, Christians, because of their practice of hospitality and how it was turning the world upside down. In fact, it was Christians, not pagans, who stayed in urban, or who stayed and actually went into urban centers, urban cities, that were ravaged with plagues. And some lost their lives because, yes, they had compassion, and yes, they wanted to pro- practice hospitality, but they lost their lives because they believed Jesus came back from the dead. In fact, the pagan doctor Galen, my middle name is Galen, my mom and dad named me after a pagan doctor. <laughs> Did you know that, right? No, he didn't know that. Uh, Galen means healer, but the pagan doctor noted that the, er, the early Christians believed in resurrection, bodily resurrection. And they didn't sleep around, and he was rendered nonplus because of that. But it was because of the resurrection of Jesus that Christians nursed pagans back to health. Christians invented hospitals for the sick, the vulnerable, the stranger. In fact, even our our understanding of rights, you can trace the etymology all the way back to to Jesus, In fact, going back to what uh, Galen said about Christians, that they believed in the bodily resurrection and they didn't sleep around a lot. There's a connection. If you believe in res- bodily resurrection, then you believe every body has dignity. In fact, there's a subtle hint here that just to do whatever you want with your body is predicated on an assumption, again, it's implicit or subconscious, but an assumption that your body really doesn't matter. It's Christians who believe that every single person in the space-time universe matters. In fact, because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, Paul would talk about, and this is famous, and if if you don't come to church much, I'm sure you've heard this, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, We have this great leveling in an ancient world that had the sharp verticality when it came to social arrangements. You had a few people at the top, right, the elites, and then everybody else who lived in uh, poverty. It is Christians who believe that everyone had rights and they fought for them. And also it's Christians who believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus who took care of kids. Can I get an amen to that? There's a horrifying letter, I wanted to read it to you, but I don't have time this morning, of um, an Egyptian father, written I think maybe f- uh, 2 um, A.D.-ish, it was in the first part of the f- um, first century, and uh, he writes to his wife, his name is Hilarion, he was hilarious, right, and uh, third bad jo- dad joke, um, and so he's writing to his wife, he's tender to his wife, as one scholar tells us, very tender to his wife, just dotes on her, there, he was actually in a different um, city, He was trying to work out an income. So he writes and says, I will come back to you as soon as I can. And then, even though he's tender with his wife, the letter turns horrifying when he says, his wife was pregnant at the time. And he says, If it's a boy, um, keep him. But if it's a girl, cast him out, her out. And here we have a view of how the pagan world worked children had no rights. Fathers had unilateral, horrifying power over their families. But it was Christians who adopt kids. It was Christians who took care of those kids who were exposed, those kids who were abandoned. It was not because they simply believed that Jesus was a good teacher. It wasn't just because they believed that Jesus healed people and they believed all of that. It was because they believed Jesus came back from the dead. So, okay, so, and there's a lot of confusion when it comes to when we talk about resurrection. What does that stinking mean? Right? You following I me? Mean? What does resurrection mean? When they said, when early Christians said, Jesus came back from the dead, what did that mean to them? Well, resurrection was not another way of saying that Jesus or his soul went to heaven, right? Resurrection was not another way of saying, oh, we get to go to some soggy, disembodied place we call heaven where we shine like a cosmic glow stick or like Rihanna's diamonds, right? I say that all the time. I love it. I'm going to continue to say it. Like, are we, is our destination, when we talk about resurrection, is that somehow... Um, linked up with disembodied harps and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I got to be honest with you. I share this all the time. If heaven is a disembodied place where we play disembodied harps, right, and we float on little clouds and we have little angel wings, I don't know if I want to go to heaven, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, huh? Now, heaven's a great place, right? But that's not what resurrection meant. Resurrection was a solid event, Resurrection was tangible. Resurrection was about re-embodiment, how someone was really bodily dead and then bodily came back from the dead. In fact, when we, you look at this mosaic of resurrection stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get this sense that, man, Jesus, his body is not like, a, like Homer's wraith-like figure, if you've read not like some disembodied ghost, but the body of Jesus is really solid. In fact, one of the things that Jesus does the very first time he comes back from the dead, which is one of my favorite things ever, is that Jesus sits down and eats breakfast with his disciples. And if you love breakfast, give me an amen. Amen. There's something powerful about breakfast. C.S. Lewis said, whoever looks at bacon and eggs with longing in his heart has committed breakfast in his heart. I love committing breakfast in my heart, right? I love it. I love it. I love it. Well, when you come to the stories, again, the mosaic, or um, all these different variegated stories that we find in the Gospels, the body of Jesus is solid. It's tangible. It's touchable. It's grasp- graspable. In fact, Jesus is not less physical. He's more. So resurrection never meant us flying off into the by and by, into some non-temporal place we call heaven. Resurrection was about re-embodiment. So, Chris, what does this mean? What does resurrection mean, right? How does that, how's that relevant to my life? And over the next few minutes, I'm going to try to answer this. Jesus coming back from the dead, how how does that stinking affect my life? First, before we get into some of the details of this, and just give me just a few minutes, Easter and resurrection is far more explosive than we could ever imagine. It's far more revolutionary, in the words of one scholar, than simply going to heaven. In fact, if we say, if we make a commitment to say that Jesus bodily came back from the dead, we gotta, get, we gotta remap the cosmos. Because the world as we know it is a radically different place, or I'll say it this way. Resurrection, if we truly begin to understand it, is a category worldview shattering thing. For example, when I was six years old, uh, was born in Portland, lived in Portland for seven years, and then we moved to Idaho, God's country. Amen. And uh, I was about six, and uh, we, it was an interesting time. Uh, my parents, they loved me. But they didn't let me watch TV, so I couldn't even watch Mr. Rogers. I watched a little bit of news. So I just, I, we didn't have exposure to TV. I got to read the newspaper, right? And, uh, and I got to go in the backyard and imagine, uh, use my imagination, right? How many, how many parents would say, I love my kids to use their imagination a little bit more, right? So obviously we didn't have iPads or anything like that, so I was pretty restricted. But I'm, I'm glad, I love my mom and dad. And, um, but I remember, I was about six, I went to my my buddy's house, I think his name was Andy, and I went into their basement and they had a TV. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen this show, it's, I think it's 1953 version of War of the Worlds. You ever seen that? So it was my first exposure to to TV and it was like the sci-fi War of the Worlds where aliens are literally laying waste to our world. So people are melting on the screen, I'm six years old. And I'm a sensitive, I'm still sensitive, but I was really sensitive. Redheads are sensitive, okay? And I was like, I was like overwhelmed. I was I was pretty traumatized. And my mind, it just works in a funny way. And so for two weeks, I didn't tell my mom and dad, but I imagine what it would be like if alien powers, again, after I watched this show where everyone's dying, right? I I tried to imagine what it would be like if alien powers were afoot, right, or present in our cosmos. And I knew, and I could have put words words to it, if there were, in fact, alien cosmic powers destroying the world, I think we all would say everything about life would change. A new state of affairs would be generated by the presence of these aliens, why are we talking about this? Well, the same is true for Easter. Once we say and believe that Jesus is bodily raised from the dead, we can't, in the words of N.T. Wright, say that with um, minimal involvement. You can't say, oh, that's, ah, I don't know why I did that. That's, just gotta wake you up. I gotta wake myself up, right? That's nice. You can't say that's, oh, yeah, 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 oh, that's nice, Jesus came back from the dead, like high-five someone, right? You can't just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, man, that's so cool, I felt some joy today at church, we're all like, you know, raising our hands, doing like a a Pentecostal two-step or whatever, and then go back home and live as if life was normal. In fact, when we say that Jesus bodily came back from the dead, what we're saying is that the cosmos itself... Is radically different. In fact, if, you make, if we make the mistake of thinking that resurrection is like no big deal, it's no problem, right? It's not, you know, it's not going to affect my life. Then we have not figured out what being bodily raised is about. Words of one scholar, we have domesticated the most explosive event in human history. So, what is... Or what does Easter and resurrection mean? How does that affect us? Number one, and John tells us in our passage here today in chapter 20 and verse 1, that it was the inauguration inauguration of God's new world. Gospel of John, I can't get into this. I I wish I could talk more about this, but John's entire gospel has been building up to this climactic point in chapter 20. Chapter 19, we have Golgotha. Right, Jesus has been crucified. Golgotha means the skull. It's, it's a dystopian wasteland. Jesus has been crucified. And then we come to chapter 20, and what does John tell us about that first Easter morning? He uses the phrase, I love, it's one of my all-time favorite phrases, early on the first day of the week, or what we would call the eighth day. It's not a part of the first seven days. It is a completely different time and space and world. Put that in your theological pipe and don't smoke it. (laughs) I'm not feeling well, so I'm just like, who knows what's going to come out, right? In other words, the world, when John uses this statement about early on the first day of the week, He's essentially saying that the world, the cosmos, the universe has turned a corner, and in the words of one scholar, has turned the corner out of its long winter into spring at last. Spring. In other words, what John is saying is we are now living in a brand new world. A world not defined or driven by winter and death and chaos, but a world defined by God's love and resurrection power, a world that will lead into summer where God will make all things new and will wipe away every tear, a world that is filled with prosperity, grace, and hope. This is what John is telling us, that it's springtime. And what, I'll be really honest with you, I I love Idaho so, so much, but Idaho winter transitioning into spring is so frustrating. Can I get a witness to that? Anyone in here like winter? You love winter? Okay. The Lord rebuke you, right? No, I'm kidding. we, 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 we We love winter, but man, the transition into spring, sometimes it's just like it takes a while. Like um, weather in Idaho, if this is like your first like year here, you'll realize that our weather is moody. One day you get snow, five hours later you get rain, and then five hours later it's sunny and 70 degrees. Like what's going on, right? Um, there, there's a sense with our springtime, I don't know about other places, but at least with, with our springtime, winter to transition into spring, that there's an overlapping of time, an overlapping of time. Of ages in a way. In, in fact, what happens is, is when winter starts um, coming to an end, what, what will you begin to see? In the ancient world, you would see crocus flowers. Here, I don't think we have crocus flowers. I think we have tulips, right? I don't know if they, they uh, arrive first. I, I don't know. But uh, I, uh, what I love about spring is that that first flower, how many of you love that? When it's raining and stinking snowing and you're tired and you, you don't feel well, and then you look into the corner and you see that first yellow beautiful flower, you know that springtime has arrived. And even though it feels like it's still winter, you know it's fait complete, like it's irreversible. Winter might still be present, but it's springtime, baby, and we are on our way to summer. Love that. Shakespeare, what he said, now out of our winter of discontent has turned glorious summer. And all the summer people said amen. amen. So it's inauguration of God's new world. It's a completely different place. It's funny when you're in springtime, it's the world, it is, it's the same, but it's different. You still have mountain ranges, you still have water, you still have lakes, you still have all these wonderful things, but you know it's different as all these trees go into bloom, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. Number two, um, Easter reminds us, or it's all about how um, God has come to put our world back together again. Resurrection always, always Corresponded, or worked with or went with a strong view of God's justice for not another world, but for this world. It went along. Resurrection went along with the healing of the world. And, and it, it showed us, again, that we don't live in a cosmos shaped by chaotic forces. We live in a cosmos not defined by winter, right, and uh, the unmaking of creation. We now live in a world that is shaped by the overflowing generosity of creator God. But it, it meant in a very specific way in this ancient world that God has come back as the king to put the world to rights. Oscar Wilde had a play, uh, I, I don't remember the name of it, and uh, his main character was Herod. And Herod, in his play, is told by one of his homies, one of his lead guys, that uh, Jesus is raising the dead everywhere. And in this story, in this fictional story, Herod, because he understands the significance of resurrection, that it's about God's justice. It's about how all the corrupt powers must be held to an account. He then yells to his lead guy, I forbid Jesus raising people from the dead. He understood that resurrection was a threat it was a threat to the powers to be who have carved up the world. If you believed in the resurrection, you, you were not committed to being respectable. You were not committed to just like, ah, oh, we'll just kind of go with the flow. If you were committed to the resurrection of Jesus, you were committed to justice and the healing and the renewal of our cities and our bodies and our towns. Number three, resurrection or Easter means um, a, a reaffirmation of the goodness of space and time and matter. Everything from bodies and brains to breakfast, can I get an amen to that, to babies, all of it is good. This world is not gross. This world is not disgusting. What you do in this life, whatever it might be, on YouTube, going to Starbucks, doing your thing, raising babies, everything we do in this world actually matters. And that God will come back and put it all to rights. Number four, Easter. You guys still with me? Easter means that God has won the great victory over death. Death, in the words of one scholar, is the unmaking of God's creation, right? It's the unmaking of us as image bearers. It's the ultimate weapon of destruction. Death is anti-creation. It's anti-human. It's anti-God. It's anti-everything that God stands for. It's anti-beauty. It's anti-art. It's anti-sports. It's anti-Dallas Cowboys. It's ah, whatever, right? It's anti creation, but Easter is a claim that the earth is the Lord's and its fullness, and that God has overthrown death as a biological and spiritual reality, and it's a rebuke to sin and evil and injustice and to all the powers that want to do it their own way. Amen. So Jesus... Through his death, because he stood in for us as our representative, what he did is he went through death, filled up, in the words of Colossians 1, Ephesians 1, filled up death with himself and came out the other side, bringing God's new world to us. And there's so much more we could talk about, but I need to end here. So Chris, how is this relevant to me, right? I've, how is this if, ah, it feels like winter. Yeah, yeah. It feels like death out there. Chris, I mean, have you been watching the news? It's funny, this week, I, it's Holy Week, and usually I fast everything. Um, I fast veganism. It's so amazing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I usually fast like media, but uh, I just, to be honest, I wasn't feeling well, and so um, I was just reading a lot of different things, and it was just, man, it's just like, God, is this, do we live? I, and these are the thoughts that I think to myself, and I, I, I know the answer, but I want you to I want you to feel what, what I felt. I'm like, God, do we live in a cosmic suffering machine we call the world, right? Like, I just read this week that they now have identified a super fungus. I'm like, what does that even mean, right? And, like, hospitals are trying to figure out antifungal, like, medicine to... Override this and they're not doing protocol. I'm like, oh my god, I'm never gonna go to a hospital again, right? It's like Lord have mercy. And then, you know, measles, you new breakout of measles, and I'm like, vaccinate your kids, right? Anyways, let's move on. I offended 70% of you. We live in Idaho, we don't vaccinate anything. You can do honestly, trust me, please come back to our next week. Please don't leave. You can do whatever you want to do, okay? But vaccinate your kids. All right, let's move on. Sorry, I've offended everybody. My son came home this week dehydrated, was sick. My wife had a 101 temperature. I wasn't feeling well. I'm like, oh, God, this is, I mean, this is just, what is going on, right? Uh, I just read and I've mentioned this many times before. David Brooks, he talks about, um, again, this is, is a sociologist, he actually um, riffs on a, a sociolo- sociologist take, research on uh, this, this mapping of American politics, and there's essentially six, seven, eight groups, I can't remember, four of the groups that have been mapped out um, have been called the exhausted majority. Like, they're exhausted with politics. They're exhausted with the Democrats. They're exhausted with the Republicans. They're exhausted with it all, right? I'm sure maybe you feel that way. I think many of us are tired. We're weary. We're exhausted. I've, I've, I've read this many times, but we're in the throes of a mental health crisis, 2018. We're, we're living in the zenith of Western civilization, right? We have it better than anyone, right, in human history, and we're so blessed, and I get this. We're not perfect. Please understand what I'm saying. But we're in this in throes of a mental health crisis. Over 50,000 people took their lives last year. Anxiety seems to, like, rule, I just read a study again this week. It's like Chris, stop reading articles. But this study of this privileged demographic group—there's a lot of talk about privilege, and I get it. I think there's important stuff that we talk about when it comes to privilege. The study for this privileged demographic, much of whom are dying at an alarming rate, they're taking their lives. The American dream isn't cutting it anymore. They're lonely. And so they're taking their lives. One scholar calls this this category of awfulness. I I hope I'm not depressing, but I just want you to get a sense of John chapter 20 about what we're going to read. This this category, if we were to categorize, um, in the words of one scholar, this awfulness, we have genocide, we have psychopaths, we have nuclear bombs, we have the idolization of race, white supremacy. Uh, mid-20th century we have um, a vision of radical evil in the concentration camps. We have, some of you have suffered through miscarriage. Some of you are suffering through anxiety right now. Some of you are sick in your body. We still have New York Giant fans. Come on. <laughs> Did that, that didn't work? Okay. It feels like winter. It feels like winter. So I had to remind myself this year that it was springtime. I had to remind myself what bodily resurrection meant and the cosmos in which we live in, which is defined by overflowing generosity. It's defined by God putting our lives back together again. It's funny, in 2018, many of you know our story. Uh, My wife and I, for 12 years, tried to have babies. Um, After about, was it five years, babe? Five years of trying, we adopted our three beautiful kids. The most perfect kids. Alive, I just love them. It was a dark day for a while, but I love them, right? <laughs> and then for 12 years, we tried, we tried, we tried. And again, of you, many of you know our story. Um, my wife miraculously got pregnant in the first part of 2018, and then in November, our twin boys, we, our second set of twin boys, it feels like raising 32 kids, right? <laughs> were born six weeks premature, and we were in the NICU for about a month ish. And uh, I I just got to tell you one thing, I just love the church because we could not have done it without you guys. Love the fact that we had Willow and Kirsten and Shane and others that just came and Trace, obviously. My parents that just came and supported us and many of you prayed for us. It's hard, NICU life is not um, for the faint of heart. So we went through a lot of different things. The boys were born six weeks premature and uh, I I remember the C-section, it was crazy. I didn't pass out. which was like I was like yeah, that, I, that meant a lot to me, um, and then just it just everything just happened really fast. In about two days, we we're in the NICU. Two days went by. Doctor came to my wife and I. Actually, I overheard the doctor say this. Yeah, I've, Presley has a heart murmur, and uh, and then he came and, and told my wife and I, um, and, you know, no big deal. But your son has a heart murmur. It could be a flow murmur. We're just we're not sure. So the following day, they um, took an echocardiogram, and the cardiologist came and looked at the structure of my son's heart, and they came back and said, your son has a very rare condition. Um, three, and if I, I don't know if I get this right, but three of, of the four of, of his valves were, were thickened in such a way that they called it um, extraordinary. They called it rare. One doctor said I've never, actually the cardiologist, which is amazing, we love him, because actually I've never seen anything like this before sat here here's our miracle babies and my son presley i'm just sitting there looking at him um, crying and obviously he was growing and looking at him and i'm like god why does he have this he's our he's our miracle and then the doctors for maybe a good month or two they tried to give us answers but they kept on coming back we have no idea chris what's going on here and i remember my wife and i we have not wept as hard as we have during this last season. I remember sitting over my son weeping and praying and believing for his healing. How many of you believe God heals? We believe that. So we were fighting the good fight of faith. We weren't giving into doubt and fear. We felt fear, I felt fear and doubt. Um, but we wept and wept and wept and wept. Finally we went to, we got some blood work drawn, went to the geneticist. No one wants to go to the geneticist, right? So we went to the geneticist, and the geneticist got some blood work, sent it to Baylor University, and they sent it back within a month and a half or two, and uh, we got uh, news that no parent would ever want to get—that our son tested positive for Noonan's syndrome, and they made the connection between um, my heart's, or my son's um, cardiac condition with Noonan itself. And Noonan's is a vast spectrum to it, um, but it can be a pretty devastating thing. But we do believe that. God is Presley's healer, and God has great purposes for this beautiful little boy. Amen? Good news, we went to the cardiologist two weeks ago, and our son is stable. And he's doing really well, and we're just going to watch and see, and I want to thank you for all your prayers. But we wept, and we wept, and we wept. Oh my God, this just feels like winter. This is where Mary's at, and this is where I close. Mary's weeping. She's weeping her face off. She looks into the tomb, she sees two angels, right? The tomb, John is telling us, is not just a tomb, it's a a temple. She's weeping, and the angels ask her a question, not to scold her, but just to ask her, why are you weeping? And then she looks up, and she sees Jesus. She mistakes Jesus as the gardener. She doesn't recognize him. There's a lot that we could talk about that, but we can't do that today. And then Jesus asks the question, it's the double question, right? Why? Are you weeping? And I love Jesus, Jesus just listens. Again, Jesus doesn't say, why are you weeping, person, to excoriate her, no, Jesus says, why are you weeping? Because Jesus wants to, he he wants to listen to what you're going through. And this is the response of Mary, and I just feel like, I felt like I needed to preach this this morning, because I feel like there are a lot of people in this room right here. Why are you weeping? And Mary looks to what she thought was the gardener. Again, she's a little bit right and she's mostly wrong. She looks at Jesus, she can't recognize him, and she says, they have taken away Jesus. Do you know where he is? They have taken away, they've taken away, they've taken away. I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to really address this point, because I think there are a lot of people in this room, you feel like something's been taken from you. Your health, maybe some of you struggle with your health. I get that. Maybe some of you have over maybe couple months, years, whatever, have dealt with the loss of your, your peace of mind, maybe your dignity, maybe you're in the throes of losing your marriage, your, your wife, your husband, your spouse, you're in the throes of, I don't know what it is, but a huge problem. This is where Mary's at. And Mary, without, I mean, this is going to sound cheesy, but Mary stands in for all of us, I think. Mary is, is like weeping in proxy for all of us. It's funny, it's like, I'll say this, my my wife and I, four years ago we went to New York City and we had dinner with um, an incredible neuropsychologist and she was talking with Kel and I about the relationship between anger and sadness. And she told us, which is fascinating, that uh, anger and sadness, they mirror each other. So if you see someone who's really angry, like on the road, on the street, with all the traffic and they're, you know, Have you ever been there? Has anyone ever gotten angry with all the traffic on Eagle Road? Oh my gosh, right? Have you ever experienced anger? Have you ever seen anger in the face of someone else? You know what's happening? Behind that is sadness. And when you see someone who's grieving or someone who is sad, you know what's behind that? Anger. And so I think there's this double emotion of sadness and anger. And Mary is weeping and she pours her heart out to Jesus, not knowing that it was Jesus. Do you ever feel like you're an outsider when it comes to prayer? Do you ever feel like your prayers bounce off the ceiling? Do you ever feel like, God, where are you? To be honest, I have felt that at times. I'm sure everyone has felt that at times. This is what Mary is feeling. But here's the good news. She's pouring her heart out. God, where are you essentially? I'm angry about this. I've lost my rabbi, and Jesus is right there. I just want to encourage you right now, you are in the throes of a very difficult situation, and you might be weeping your face off. Here's the good news. Jesus is listening to you. Jesus is right there. But here's the best news. I love the sequence of this kind of tête-à-tête between Mary and Jesus. Jesus listens to her, and then he says, Miriam, in other words, Jesus in this resurrected new world, Jesus in the cosmos that we live in will always have the last word over everything that's been taken from you. Jesus will have the last word over your body, Jesus will have the last word over your marriage. Jesus will have the last word over your kids. I wish we were in church today and I got a little amen about you. Jesus will always have the last word over creation itself. In fact, when Jesus says, Miriam, he doesn't say Mary. He doesn't call her by her old name in the words of one scholar. This is the name that soldiers would call her. This is the name that um, people who knew Mary from uh, high school Mary, right? She had seven demons, right? Like she was so crazy. She, they didn't even put her in the yearbook, right? She was crazy. That's how, that's Mary. Jesus doesn't call her by her old name, calls her by her original name in the Hebrew and Aramaic, Miriam. This is in the words of one scholar. What a. What Jesus essentially is doing is calling her by what her dad used to call her, Miriam. In other words, Jesus is getting the last word over all things in creation, but he's saying that something has dramatically shifted in the relationship between Mary and Jesus. There's an intimacy. Jesus essentially saying is like, I no longer call you by your old name, that's winter stuff, that's chaos. I'm calling you by your new name, Miriam, Why? Because it's springtime, baby. might not feel like it, but it's springtime. And even though, and there's some of you, you feel like you're being, right now, I feel it, you feel like you're being dragged back into winter. Here's the good news. I love seasons because seasons always tell us that it's feta complete. Once spring arrives, it's over for winter. You can't go back. Can I get an amen? you're only heading towards summer. That's the good news of this new world. That's the good news of Easter. And when I was in that hospital, weeping over my son, Presley, praying over my son, Wesley, I had to keep on reminding myself, God, 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 it's not winter, it's not winter, it's not over. My son has a future, We're, we live in your world, not in the world of death and sickness and chaos. We live in the world, and it might not make sense to me. I don't have metaphysical answers to why this has happened, but I trust you. We are at the beginning of your new world. And as I close, this is what I've, this is what I've come to realize when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to resurrection. When we say Jesus is risen, We cannot any longer think of Easter in light of our problems. We can't think of Easter in light of our marriage is not working, my body's not working, this is hard, I get it. And I wanna hear um, your heart, because I I know this might be hard for some of you to, to stomach. But when we say Jesus is risen, we can no longer think of Easter in light of our problems, but we have to see our problems in light of Easter. We, in other words, are no longer in winter. We are in spring. So we end here. What does this mean then? And then we'll bring up. Our worship team's already up here. All right. Good job, guys. I love this part. Jesus then says in verse 17, go, after he says, Miriam, go to my brothers, and I want you to tell them I'm going to my father, and then I'm going to your father. To my, I'm going to my God, and now I'm going to your God. And he Wright says this, Jesus... Throughout the book of John has spoken about God as his father, as the father, as the father who sent him. Throughout the gospel of John, Jesus has called his disciples servants and friends. Now it seems like everything has changed. A new relationship has sprung into life. The disciples, he continues, the disciples are now entering into a brave new world, a world where they can know God the way Jesus knew God, as intimate children with their father. Is there, how many parents do we have here? Is there anything you want to do for your kids? Like I remember we were at Dick's Sporting Goods and my son got into a, a really bad, like, ordeal. His bro, his bro. My, my sons are really competitive. They get it from their, their mom. Um, they're running around in dicks. I was trying to, it was before a football game, I was trying to get socks. And, and I remember Quincy accidentally shoved his bro into a metal plank. And I remember sitting there watching this. I actually didn't see what was going on. And I, I knew my son wasn't. Wesley was in big trouble. He's screaming bloody murder, murder. I pick him up. I'm not really paying attention to his head. And then I look over and there's literally blood all over me. They're just like, oh my gosh, right? So, at that point, I'm like, all right, I got. This is save my son mode. I didn't care who was in. I, it could have been the president of the United States. Could have been Kanye. It could have been like maybe people you respected. I didn't care in that moment about being respectable. I was gonna take care of my boy. So I'm running around screaming, hey, you, you get over here now. Quincy's like screaming, I killed my brother! <laughs> and then I'm sit, I bring him to the front, I lay him down in front of everybody, right? And I'm just like, hey, I, we call the ambulance and the ambulance comes, and the EMT comes, blood is squirting everywhere and thankfully a woman came and helped me and she calmed me down. <laughs> where are we going with this, Chris? I don't know, right? I don't know where we're going. There's nothing I want to do for my kids. I, I didn't care about anything, and I'm the one who rescued. That's where I'm going. I rescued my boy. See, this is how God sees you. There's nothing he won't do to rescue your body, your marriage. Again, it might not feel like that, but there's nothing he won't do. You can have this new relationship with God, this resurrection life through Jesus. Can I get any man of that? Can you bow your heads